have to take off, then that's just as great. But we want to start this evening with a Bible study. I'm going to invite you to join us where we left off in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, while you're turning there, and if you need any sermon notes, anybody need any more? They walked in, didn't get them. You, you want to have the notes. Did you do the offering already? Oh, I thought you guys did that. Okay. You feel free to walk and take it if you want. Okay. It's up to you. I'm going to start my Bible study as we get going in Mark chapter 5. I was thinking about, after having read a couple times, about some really fascinating, fascinating rescues. We, we all know, it's even in movie form, is it not, where Sullenberger had uh, that plane had, had been hit by the birds, went into the Hudson River, and they've got the whole film. Fascinating how they did. I was reading about a count, 1902. It's in a Mexican village. I'm going to have to look at the name to make sure I say it right. Uh, Nera Nacozari, Mexico. Nacozari, Mexico. There was a train pulled in. And the engineer got off, and he's walking around the train. And then when he looks down the line of the train, he realizes that one of the boxcars starting to have flames shoot off the top of the roof. And he was very concerned because that boxcar was filled with TNT. And so he ran back into the engine, you know, into the engine, took off with the train. Other people are trying to trace it down, saying, you know, he's stealing it. But he was the engineer. He's getting it out of town. And when he gets it far enough out of town, then the entire thing explodes. They said that they could feel the explosion 10 miles away. But by him taking that effort, making that effort, he rescued the entire town from being totally blown off the map. He and those who were with him didn't survive. A fascinating rescue. I was reading an account about an individual that uh, was running for president in, um, in Colombia, South America, in 2002. This woman who was running for the presidential office decided to go into one of the remote village areas because she wanted to even communicate and reach out and show that she was interested in some of the remote poor areas. When she got there, there was a rebel element that had formed its own organization, was doing a lot of guerrilla movement. They captured her. For six years, they kept her and her staff who was with her as prisoners. And then finally, the police in the government system found out exactly where she was being kept. And they went undercover, pretending to be some of the rebels, coming into the camp where she was being kept, saying that we are here to transfer her to another area of Colombia where the, where the rebel leader of that entire movement was. They pulled it off. They got her, got her released from her captors because they were going to fly her over to the rebel leader. And basically, they got her to be escaped. Uh, freed, escaped from being held captive for all that time. And then she has now started this whole movement of being aware of those who are kidnapped, those who are in those types of situations, being held hostage or political prisoners. I was reading one of those famous books by Paul Harvey. Remember Paul Harvey, anybody? He was known for the Yes, he's telling a story, and I forget the French painter, from the time period of the French Revolution. And he's talking about this painter, and, and he tells the story like Paul Harvey tells the story, that you know this painter was in the woods just outside Paris where a lot of painters were collecting, would collect and do their painting. And all of a sudden, one day when he was out there, this fellow came up and just collapsed by him and said, please, please help me. And the painter got food. He helped this man out who was just absolutely fatigued and devastated and found out that he was a political prisoner. 
that he was going to be one of those who would be you know, guillotined if he, if he got caught. So the painter went to a nearby village and he bought some more paints. He bought another easel. He got some clothing for this man. And he and that man stayed in the woods for a period of time and he, they were passed off as two painters painting together until his, the man's friends were able to secure him passage and get him out of France. Fast forward several years. We're like 25 years later. The French Revolution is done. And this painter is sitting in Paris and he's painting. While he's painting, he's painting some of the scenes by one of the palace gates and included in the painting he's doing is also some of the fortifications. Well, some of the guards came out and were watching, admiring him, and then they started to become suspicious. And pretty soon, within a few minutes, they're accusing him of being a spy. And putting down all the defenses and and working for a different foreign government. And he's trying to defend himself, but a crowd gathers. And the entire crowd is calling for him to be executed. And by this point, they still hadn't gone over some of that terror system, but they hauled this man down into the center of the uh, town where they would hold an immediate trial. And it was quite common that the immediate trial would last all of a few minutes, and then they would execute the man. They even had men standing 24-7 waiting to shoot the prisoners. And so they're there, they got them gathered, they call out the judge from inside, and the crowds are saying, execute him, kill him. And just then, one of the the officials from the government happens to be coming by, and he pushes himself through the crowds. And they find out that he is now the minister of justice in charge of the entire legal system. And he comes through and asks what's going on, and when he sees the painter... He rushes up to the painter, grabs him by the shoulders, and he said, Do you remember me? It's the very man that that painter, 25 years earlier, had helped we in the woods who, had, who was you know, so destitute. And so instead of him being executed, he gets freed, and he gets a permanent you know, papers that he can paint any scene he wants. He was rescued by a friend. You read these stories of people all of a sudden hitting on you know, life and death difficulties and some survive and some rescue others and it's amazing. There's a story there's actually three stories in Mark chapter 5 of amazing rescues. Absolutely phenomenal. It starts in chapter 5 verses 1 down through well let's see you see the break if you have a break in your Bible about verse 20. We talked about this a few weeks back. This is the rescue of the maniac of Gadara. The man who is demon possessed by a legion and how Jesus comes and frees him. Then the second half of the chapter is all about the rescue of two other people. And he talks about these two other people. One is, actually, neither one of them is named, but one is the daughter of Jairus, and the other one is this woman that we never hear her name of. But it is interesting as you read through and as you unpack the story and go through Mark chapter 5 of how this is all put together. And how we're told about these two individuals, one a 12-year-old girl, one a woman who has a disease for 12 years, how God rescues them. I want to read it in its entirety, and then I want to ask you questions. So as we're reading through, just, just think while we read it through, think of the two characters in this story, because this is critical to understanding it. There's two ladies who are your main characters. The one, the one is the daughter of Jairus, the other is another woman. As we're going through, think and see what similarities do you see between them. And as we read it through, what is, how does the author lay this out? 
Look at the, the, just the pattern of where the stories and how they fit together. It is really important to interpreting this text by catching some of that background information. Let's start with verse 21. When Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him because he was near unto the sea. Let's pause. Let's stop. The night before, he had gone all the way over to the Gergesenes, Gadarenes, however you want to say it, and they had told him after he had healed the maniac Bactera, they said, get away, leave. He goes back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, uneventful trip. No more storms, no more problems, but when he gets back, as soon as he reaches back to the area where he ministers for the most part time and time and time again, much people meet him there and they're gathered there. And behold, there comes one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw Jesus Jesus, he fell at his feet and beside him, how so? Do you have any, do you have a word there? An adjective, a title phrase? He beside him greatly, okay? Saying unto him, my little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray you come and lay your hands on him, on her, excuse me, that she may be healed and she live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, come to the press behind and touched his garment. For she had said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the, unto the press or to the large crowds and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said, You see the multitude thronging you, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith had made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of your plague. And while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And Jesus suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, John, the brother of James. He comes to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and sees the tumult, tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why do you make this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he takes the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, enters in where the damsel was lying, and we read on, he took the damsel by the hand and said to her in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto you, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was about 12 years of age, and they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given to the girl to eat. Okay, take, take the way this is laid out. There's something weird. This doesn't happen hardly ever. But when they're telling the story, how does the story start out? The account of this healing. Who do we start with? The girl, Jairus, coming. Okay? And the story is focused on Jairus and the girl's needs. Jesus is going. And all of a sudden, in route, we have another different story of another healing. And it's put in there. Okay? The next few verses about the woman, the issue of blood. And then what happens? When that is resolved, what do we go back to? 
right back to Jairus' daughter. It's like two pieces of, of bread, and in the middle is the meat. Why does the author sandwich these stories in between? Is it just purely for chronological purposes? Is it just so, you know, he's just giving that great of a, of a, of a story, just exact? He doesn't do that in every other account. Mark, nor Matthew, nor Luke, they don't always put everything in chronological order. There is a reason why God, in his inspiration of this passage, wants these two stories interconnected. That there's the one account is sandwiched between the two. That is, that is um, even emphasized by the fact that there's a lot of parallels. Just if you just real quickly, you're looking and thinking about the two ladies that is that are going to be the recipients of healing. What are the parallels in this story? I just gave you one already. It's two ladies. It's two ladies. Okay. What else do you have? They're both extremely sick. They're both to the point of the girl is dying and the woman with the issue of blood, this is, this is something that has absolutely gone beyond anybody's ability to heal the woman. Anything else? Okay, there's faith involved in, this, in both of the healings. And he even commends the faith in this story. What else do you have? Uh, is there a number that there's a parallel between numbers? The girl is 12. The woman's been sick for 12 years. What else do you have? Anything else? Maybe you're not fully aware, but maybe you are, and it's just, it's Wednesday night. You've worked hard. These, both of these, both of these situations, what happens to a Jewish individual who touches somebody who is dead? They're unclean. What happens to somebody who touches a woman with an issue of blood. They are unclean. Both of these, and I'll explain a little bit later when we get to the woman, but both of these are people who would be put into the realm of unclean individuals. And in fact, what does Jesus do to both of them? He doesn't do this all the time when he's healing, but in both of these cases, I've already just said it, it has to do, what, how, what, what contact is there? He, there's a touch. Both of them, there's an important touch that is made. You can go through and you can see a variety of, of different, uh, different parallels. By the way, in the Aramaic and in the, and, uh, the language that he uses, when he says, damsel arise, it is the same word for daughter. He refers to both of them with terms of endearment. Daughter, your faith hath made you whole. Daughter, young girl, arise, get up. And so terms of endearment are used. And so you go through and you say, well, now wait a minute, God has something in this story. If we're going to get it right, we have to go and say, okay, God has put these two stories together. They are intertwined. There's too many parallels between them, and they're, they're sandwiched together. What is he trying to ha- have us catch? That What is the connection between these two? I think there's several connections, but they're very important. So as we start looking at the story, let's give a little bit of background. You're very familiar. You could tell the story better than I could, but let me give you a little bit of background information as you just walk through. As you're going through and we start, we're going to st- we have to start with Jairus. What does it mean by he's the ruler of the synagogue? Anybody remember? In fact, I don't, I don't know if I even taught this when we were doing the life of Christ. This is not a Pharisee. 
In that time, in that era, the term that is used here for ruler of the Pharisee would be, uh, of the synagogue would not be the Pharisee, but probably the one who would, we would call a lay leader in the in the synagogue. The elders of the synagogue would typically do this. You know that it would take ten men in order to form a synagogue, at least. When the synagogue is formed, then the leaders of the synagogue would they would vote one of the men, one of the lay leaders, to be the superintendent the ruler, the head of the synagogue. That man would be responsible for a lot of important little details in the synagogue worship. He would be the one that was given the security and the safety of the scrolls that were kept there. He would be the one that would be in charge of the maintenance of the property. That would be very important because he would make sure everything is set and ready and clean and, re- and, and everything's in place for the regular weekly worship. He was the one who would set up and invite in who was going to be the person who would lead in prayer if it, was a, if it was the Pharisee or somebody else and which one of the people in the village might be asked to read the scriptures. And so in the format of their worship system, this was a very important character. We might call him in modern day, we might say, oh, this is the chairman of the deacon or the moderator of that gathering. So he was well-to-do. Now I remind you, has Jesus had dealings with Pharisees already and synagogues? Yes or no? The answer is yes. And what has it been? If you go back a few chapters, and if you remember what had happened in chapter 3, that Jesus had a falling out with those who were the leaders of Israel. In fact, you go back to chapter 3, and it talks about in verse 22, the scribes, the rulers, the hoi polloi of the Jewish system have come from Jerusalem. And they had stirred up even, as we compare all the gospel accounts, they had stirred up a lot of the Pharisees in the local communities for or against Jesus against him. In fact, back in chapter 3, what was their conclusion? The Jewish leadership concluded that Jesus was working in league with who? With Satan. Okay, keep that in mind. That Jesus is being reproached by a leader of a synagogue. The synagogues have already made their public declaration. They have rejected Jesus officially. He has been rejected. And so for this man to come and Jesus to respond to him, ooh, that's really interesting because as a ruler of the synagogue, he works hand in hand with what religious groups? The Pharisees. Okay? And they have already made their decision. For this man to come to Jesus, is this a matter of great faith and breaking with, with his traditional friends? Yes, this, is, this man coming to Jesus, this is a big step of one of two things, desperation or faith. Okay, so that's your setting of this. To get that information is very, very important. So Jairus comes, and he's going to approach Jesus, and his state of mind, we read in the account in chapter 5. How, describe his state of mind. How would you put it? What's he feeling? Desperate. Desperate. I, any other words? Yeah, at at wit's end, just what's he going to do? But when he comes to Jesus, where do you what do you see in the account? As far as does he display any amount of faith? Yes or no? Where? How so? Right, right. And then what does he say as well? 
If you lay hands, she will what? She will live, okay? So he's displaying to Jesus and to everybody else. And remember, remember, this isn't in private. This isn't Nicodemus coming at night. What do we know about so what, as far as the setting? It's extremely crowded. So this man in front of everybody is making the, a form of a confession saying, I believe you can heal my daughter if you would come with me. Jesus' response, it's very simple. What does he do? He goes with them. He, Jesus is going with them, okay? And, and, and by the way, look what it says. The author wants you to catch. Not only does Jesus go with him, but who else is tagging along? Okay, you've got this uh, great amount of people. You've got the disciples, you've got people thronging. And so this is a very public situation. And they have seen that this man in his faith, in his... In his and by the way, uh, can, we, can we throw another attitude there? This man shows humility. Okay, remember now, he's the leader in the community. How does he show humility before Jesus? He fell on his feet. He's pleading with him. And so he is, he is recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ in front of everybody. In front of, you know, despite the fact that he's a ruler of the synagogues. This man is, he's, he's, you know, he's exalting Christ, if you would, in a, in a tremendous way. And then all of a sudden, they're moving along. And by the way, in the original language, the idea that they're going or would you please come, it's very strong that this is urgent, urgent. Please come right now. And so they're moving along. Let's set the scene. The man is pleading with Jesus. Jesus said, I'll come. And they're moving along, okay? And as they're moving along, all of a sudden, and they're on a mission. And this is a, this is a mission according, if you were the man, if you were the man, you want Jesus to come when? Yeah, and you want this all done yeah, yesterday is the better way of saying it. So there's a, there's a motivation move. And Jesus is going. But all of a sudden somebody comes up and says, you know, I want to touch his garment. And if I touch his garment. Now, set the scene again. The woman who comes and who sneaks up behind for healing. Okay? There's lots of things that, that are happening in this passage. I mean, where Jesus feels that virtue goes out and he turns around and says, Who touched me? Is it because he doesn't know? Is that, is that what he's doing? The crowd's too big. I don't know who really touched me. That, so why is this all happening? You've got to think through the story and just ask the questions. But before we get to that part, the woman is coming up. The woman has had a disease for 12 years. You look at the passage. Look at how he, they, they want us to know the, the, the woman's situation. It says, a certain woman, no name, suffered an issue of blood for 12 years. Um, without me being risque, without me being you know, impolite, what she's, she's got a feminine bleeding issue. Whatever it is, she's hemorrhaging. In fact, the term that is used that they want to help us to understand how bad this is, go down to verse 29. The last word in the phrase, she's healed of that what? That plague. The word that is used here is <clears throat> literally mastics. It means to whip, to scourge. It means to inflict great pain. Whatever feminine problem she is having, okay, it's beyond her normal cycle. It is something that is lasting, and it is, it is really plaguing her. And she is feeling that. She is, she is encumbered by this physical condition. If you go back into the book of Leviticus, and without, and I know I'm, I'm not trying to be risque, I'm not trying to be improper, but we don't get the full gist of the story unless we understand their culture and their rules. 
somebody who's in their in their normal uh, monthly cycle, they were considered that they weren't supposed to have a lot of physical contact for a period of of that time. And then if it continued on beyond the normal routine and the normal the normal process. If there was any lengthy period, according to, and let me give you the text, Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 27, if a woman had an ongoing problem, she was banned from the temple until it was taken care of. She wasn't allowed ever to come to the temple, and she would be declared unclean. And if she touched somebody, she was like a leper, that she would make them unclean. I didn't make those rules. Don't get upset and say that's unfair. That's the way it was. And so when this woman having this issue for this extended period of time, she understands Jewish religion. She understands Jewish culture. She's in a Jewish community. She is physically unclean. She would have to be like a leper where she stays away from people. And this has been going on for 12 years. There's no mention, somebody says, as a husband. Because very likely and very easily, and according to rabbinic law, they could divorce her. Because she's an unclean person. Watch how the author wants you to understand how desperate this is. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, it's all participial phrases that all have a very emphatic way of saying, and I'm going to read it with some of the emphasis. She kept on suffering many things of many physicians. She kept on having spent all that she had. She, was, she kept on being nothing bettered. She kept on rather growing worse and worse. The idea of the wording here is to get us to understand, and the original people, would, readers, would get it better than us. This was, a, this was an impossible situation. It was where she lost, she's, she's broke. She's destitute. Nobody has helped her out. Nothing has changed. She has no hope. She is losing family. She's losing social contact. She has no religious opportunities. She is in a desperate... She's basically become what to most people? Yeah. Yeah. They, They could... Might as well have a funeral for her already in that culture. And so here she is. She's desperate and she sees and hears about Jesus. She knows that Jesus has done something. There's been stories. There's been healings. She's, he's back in that area where there's been multiple healings. And she goes through the crowd. Can you imagine this? She knows that as she works through the crowd, she is basically, without them realizing it, she pushes herself through. What is she doing to everybody? She's touching him. She's pushing herself through. And she gets to Jesus and she says, if I can just touch him, then maybe... Maybe if I touch him, then you know, I'll be healed of this disease. I shall be whole. She believes he's powerful. She believes that he is, he is somebody who can work a miracle. By the way, just to throw this out, it doesn't diminish her faith because Jesus commends her faith. But in the ancient world, it was frequently thought of if there was somebody who was a special person, that crowds would get close to them if they could just touch them, if they could just get a locket, if they could just get anything. If somebody in prominence of importance, then somehow, some way, there would be this power, there would be this influence. They, they talk a lot about Alexander the Great when he went from city to city. People would mob him because if they could touch him, if the soldiers, the military could touch him, maybe by osmosis, (laughs) it would rub off and they would have some of the greatness. So in that culture of that day, this isn't unusual. Oh, by the way, is it still that way today? People want to touch the celebrities? Okay. And so this woman comes, but she is even different in her thinking. She says, I could be completely healed 
if I touch this, this one uh, great figure. And so she gets to Jesus. She touches him. Now, ladies, you can appreciate this better than we men. Notice how in this passage, how the author wants us to understand how she immediately felt that this, everything was gone. It says it twice in the text. It says in verse eight, uh, 29, immediately, straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And immediately, and he talks about it again, where it says uh, a little bit later, um, I know it's down here, where, where the woman again knows right away that right away she was healed. 33. Okay, 33. Okay, the woman fearing, trembling, knowing, uh, there it is, thank you, knowing what was done to her, came and fell down. And so immediately she's sensing, and she's physically, she knows things have changed. She has improved of this, you know, problem in her, in her, uh, in her abdomen, and she's right away, okay, that, she's back to normal. And she knows it, and Jesus turns around, and Jesus says, who touched me? You know the story. The disciples are saying, how can you say that? There's so many people here. It doesn't make any sense. And we know he knows. But he's getting this woman to come forward. And she steps forward. And notice in the passage, when she steps forward this time, what's her feeling? In verse 33, she's fearful. What, what, what does she think is going to happen? Why is she afraid of Jesus? He just healed her. Well, remember... Remind you, what has she just broken? She's broken the law. She touched a rabbi. That was a breaking of their law. But she broke the specific of God's law with her uncleanness. She touched him. And isn't it ironic that Jesus, his, his powers, just all these unclean risks, he's unpolluted by it. Instead of him being polluted, what does he do? He, he cleanses. He cleanses. I mean, what a, what a portrait there. And so what happens is Jesus speaks to her, assures her, and instead of rebuking her for touching him, he's a rabbi. You don't touch rabbis. You just don't. Ladies don't touch rabbis. Rabbis don't touch ladies. Jewish code. And she had snuck up and touched him, being unclean, and he knew it. And he's right away, what happened? Who did this? And she's coming forward. And she's nervous. She's afraid. She's gonna, it's going to get worse. And he says to her, Okay, when she falls down and brings out and says the truth, he calls her what? Verse 34. Daughter, a term of endearment. And he commands her, your faith had made you whole. And then he speaks in Aramaic language, a, a word of Hebrew blessing. Go in peace. Shalom. Something extremely positive. And be whole. Okay? Be confident that your plague has totally taken away. Your whipping, your scourging, it's all gone. And so we get that account, and, and all of a sudden, and then catch these words. Watch what happens if you haven't caught already. Look at the, the, the way verse 35 starts. Jesus is speaking to her, and what's your next words? What? While he yet spake. Okay? This is the, I, I think this is the critical uh, phrases. While he was speaking, what happens? The servants come up, and they say to Jairus, who, by the way... What you're Jairus, what are you thinking when Jesus is standing here? Right? Right? Let's get going. You said you were going to come. My daughter could be dying. Let's move it. Let's move it. This woman, what does she want? She's, she's you, know, you know, she didn't ask. I asked. She, didn't, she butted in line for a healing. And Jairus is anxious. And what did the servants say to Jairus? Your daughter's dead. Don't what? Yeah. 
Don't bother the master. Watch again. Watch what happens. Verse 36, how does it start off? As soon as Jesus heard the next line, it's interesting to me that while he spake, and as soon as he heard, Jesus, boom, he's right on top of it. There is something in these two accounts that Jesus wants Jairus to catch. He wants him to to follow through. And Jesus is, as soon as he hears the news, you know, it comes up. And they say, don't bother the master. Your daughter's dead. Jesus is right on it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't listen to them. I'm paraphrasing the entire, the entire next phrase. Don't listen to them. Don't be afraid. Do what? Keep, literally, keep on believing. Keep on believing. That's the way he says it to Jairus, who has just heard it's too late. It's too late. Because this woman, this woman slowed you down. It's too late now. Actually, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This woman didn't slow you down. This woman is, she's your example. She's your encouragement to keep on believing. And then it goes right back to what happens. Jesus continues to walk, but this time, what does he leave behind? All the crowd. He's going he's gonna to get rid of the crowd. He's going to leave his disciples. I don't know if this is what it means. I don't know if it means he's, he's really quickening the pace. He's going to move. You guys stay here. We're, we're moving. And so they get far ahead of the crowd, and they get to the house. And when he gets to the house, what, what's happening at the house? Okay, Jay, it's very important. Who's doing the mourning? Okay, remember Jewish culture. Okay, what did you do? How would you, you hired the mourners. The professional mourners would show up as soon as possible. And by the way, they didn't have to be hired because it was basically, if they showed up, you pay. Okay, okay. It was like the people who, when you, sometimes you you park in the city, you come up to a stop sign, they wash your windshield, whether you asked them or not. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pay. So the mourners would show up, and the, the professional mourning mourners. And Jesus calls it a tumult. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of carrying on. And Jesus says, "Stop all this carrying on. She's not dead. She's sleeping." And the crowd says, oh, "Wow, she's not dead." Great. No, I didn't paraphrase that right at all. Okay, that's not, a, that's not at all what happens. They laugh and look, notice the text. They mock and laugh Jesus to scorn. They are like, you are nuts. You are a phony. You are everything. Now, you're Jairus. Your wife is sitting there. You see your wife and her, her brokenhearted. You have some relatives there. Everybody's brokenhearted. They've told you your daughter is dead. You went to Jesus, and Jesus says, don't believe anything that your eyes are seeing. Don't believe what you're hearing. Don't believe, just operate not by what is physically right here, but operate by faith. This is huge. This is huge what Jesus is asking of him. To just believe me, trust me. Everybody get out. Everybody get out. And Jairus doesn't reject this. Jairus goes along with this. Now, is he, does he know about all kinds of physical resurrections? By the way, let me throw this out. Has Lazarus been resurrected yet? Resuscitated. Has Lazarus been resuscitated yet? No. 
No, no, that's later on. And so this is this idea of your daughter coming back to life, this is going to be Elijah-like, Elisha-like. How long ago did you have those miracles taking place? Hundreds of years ago. It's stuff you read about, but you don't believe happens. Right. And so they kick, he kicks everybody out, and Jesus, you've read the story. Jesus says to the girl, little girl, daughter, arise. And by the way, just watch how he puts all these little details. He tells us the girl gets up immediately. By the way, another parallel? Immediately, 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 immediately. Very strong that this isn't taking time. This dead girl who apparently was sick for a period of time, and usually, let's throw this out, if you have a fever or a sickness, how do you feel when you get out of bed? Okay? And this girl gets up. Everybody's astonished. And by the way, when you get up, after you've had the flu, you want to eat a lot. Mm. What does Jesus tell her to do to a 12-year-old? Feed her. She's a healthy 12-year-old. Okay, let's get her some food right away. The, the whole point of that verse is to tell us that this was a complete, total healing. Okay, so we, we get all those details. We go through the story. You've asked all the questions, and you say, wow, this is amazing. This is you know, the whole account that we're very familiar with. Now, if you're going to say, how does this apply? What do we walk out with? In any story and narrative, ask yourself a few of these questions. In your own Bible study, you know, ask questions like this. What does the story teach me about... This is where I'd start every account. Okay? Not faith. If we're going to approach our Bible, we want to learn about faith. But if we're going to approach the Bible, let's approach the Bible with a theocentric approach. What does this teach me about God? Because God is always revealing himself in his word. So the first question we want in any text is, what does this teach me about God? In in fact, let's let's make it even more pointed. Uh, Jesus? Okay? Let's find out. What does this teach me? What does this t- say about God? What does this say about Jesus Christ? Then I want to know this one question. It could be another one I'd ask. Okay, then secondarily, after I want to know about what does this teach me about God himself, then what does this teach us about us, humanity? Is there anything in the story that teaches about how, how people are, what people are like, or, or our condition, etc., etc.? Then we would want to ask this question. What does God or Jesus want us to know? Is there some fact? Is there some tidbit of information to know? But then more importantly, not just to know, but what do they want us to, to do? To do. Okay, so let's just take one of those questions. And let's just say, what does this story teach me about Jesus? I mean, this is what it, Mark says the whole gospel is about. This, the whole book is about teaching us about Jesus, the Son of God. Okay? And so if, this is my now, my conclusions say, okay, what does this teach me about Jesus? Several things. Several things that each one has practical application or encouragement or challenge. It teaches me, and I'm going to use for the sake of alliteration, eyes. It teaches me that he is incredible. He is incredible when it comes to things he can do. You look at the story and the incredible situation. You have him casting out a legion of demons. Right on the heel of that, casting out, the, uh, casting out an issue of blood. Right after, which was a terrible, terrible disease for 12. Right after that, he's taking care of the greatest of all this, the man's difficulties. Death. I mean, 
You're reading the story for the first time and you're going, this man is not affected or afflicted by demons. He is not affected or afflicted by contamination of uncleanness. He's not affected or afflicted by being infected. You and I shake hands and we get sick. Jesus touches uncleanness. Doesn't affect him a bit. Absolutely. The virtue idea of going out of Jesus is phenomenal. He's incredible. He's just not our God that we talk. He's incredible. He's amazing. You got to finish these two stories and go, wow, what kind of God do we serve? Those, those people in that bedroom, what did mom and dad have to think about Jesus? What did Peter, James, and John think about Jesus? What does it say? They were all, they're all amazed. They're astonished. By the way, this is the same Jesus we worship. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay, number two. Number two, it teaches us that he is impartial. He is impartial when it comes to ministering to others. Okay, think about it. He shouldn't have been ministering to these people because they were... Let's, let's offend half of you. They were ladies. They were females. He's not supposed to be touching ladies. Okay? That's just taboo. Okay? And you basically, again, ladies in a lot of that society were... Don't, you know, get mad at somebody else, but not me. They weren't the most important elements. Okay? That's the culture. Did Jesus care for them? Absolutely. Did he care for kids? He, this is a kid. Did he care for a woman who is, she's obviously getting, getting up in years. Okay? We don't know her age. She has been, is she, does she offer anybody anything? Not in her condition. Well, maybe she could pay him. No, what does the text say? She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have anything. What can she do for Jesus? There's no, nothing. His, his lack of, of, you know, of prejudice. He is totally impartial. He is ministering to people who are unclean. He is ministering to... Here's one. Let me throw this out. He is helping a man who is on whose side. He's on the wrong side. The, by, political, by political alignment... This man is associated with the enemy. That's where he's been. That's what he's doing. That's his current job. He's associated with those people. Therefore, we shouldn't have anything to do with them. In fact, those are the very groups of people that, what did they say about Jesus just two chapters before? He's in league with? What, what would some of us feel? What's that feeling that we wouldn't do? But what is, what is that feeling what, what do we, how do we describe that feeling when we want to not help somebody or that's good that it happened to them? The Bible talks about it being, yeah, could be revenge, could be hate. Does Jesus throw any of that out? Does he display any of that? No, yes, not at all. Not at all. Does he say, oh, wait a minute, he is in company with those people, therefore I'm not touching this guy. No. But 
if he was doing the political correct thing of that society, should he have helped this man out? Not at all. But he goes way beyond it. That's Christ. Which, by the way, if that's the way Jesus operates, what does that say to us? Okay? Number three. I made up a new word. Okay? He's interruptible. Okay? He's interruptible. Do you, do you know where that is in this story? Yeah? Okay, do I have to explain it? You all got it? He's busy going this way, and somebody needs him. He stops. He stops. I am so grieved in my spirit by this story because I am always busy going a certain direction. And if somebody wants something, it's like, wait. Get in line, pick a number, and maybe tomorrow I'll get to you. Not Christ. Not, oh, and by the way, let's put ourselves in Jairus' sandals. Jesus, when you promise to do something, you need to do it now. Is God's timing always our timing? No. Jesus is interruptible, and some of that is because Jesus patiently works and is doing what's best for us. Number four, he is insistent. He is insistent when it comes to believing him. How do we get that out of the story? Well, he commends the people for faith, but, and I think this is the crucial text, I, of the part, part, crux of the story, is when, and I think this is why they're sandwiched together. I think the woman is, comes to Jesus not incidentally, not accidentally, I think providentially she is brought to Jesus at that moment. She comes. And she reaches out to Jesus. She touches him at that moment. She's got the worst scenario, okay, next to Jairus's news of his daughter dying. This is a walking dead woman. She is by, by all virtue, please, I don't believe they really exist, but by all, by all comparison, she's a zombie. She's a living zombie, if you would. Now, don't walk out and say that. I really believe in zombies. But I'm trying to make that parallel. She's a walking dead person in that society. That's what she is by everybody's account. And when Jairus hears, your daughter is dead. That's it. And Jesus says, immediately Jesus says to him, Keep on, keep on believing. Keep on believing. And he's insistent. Keep on believing. Let's go. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. Does Jesus ever become insistent with you and I to keep on believing? Well, let me rephrase that. Do we ever get these moments? I don't think I can go on. It's impossible. I just, it, it, it couldn't get worse, but it just, it just did. I, I didn't think, I didn't think we could get worse bad news. And I just did. And Jesus is insistent that we do what? We keep on believing. We keep on believing. We keep on believing. We keep on trusting him. We keep on asking him to work. Number five. I think the other lesson is this. Jesus, if I can put it that way, he is indulgent. He is indulgent when it comes to responding to people's faith. 
I am one of those terrible grandparents that I let my grandkids do things I would never, ever, ever had let my kids do. I had much higher standards for my kids. Okay, they had to eat better, they had to play better, they had to do. But the grandkids, they get away with a lot more. Okay, because as I'm told, I do what with the grandkids? I indulged. Oh, no, no, not spoil. Don't say spoil. That, that's a bad word. That's a bad word. Okay. No. <laughs> I indulge them. I indulge them. I, I have a different standard for them that says, you know, because I, I, I realize now that standard I had for my own kids, it didn't work anyway. So, you know, the, the standard has lowered to a, more of a reality that says, okay. And I indulge the kids. Jesus in, is indulging little people. Little people of faith. People who have faith at different levels. That, that they need to be re-encouraged. They need to be resurgence. They need to be, you know, all of a sudden, oh, I did something wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have touched him after all. And they question, oh, did I do something right? Did I do something wrong? Or, oh, she's gone. She's dead. I can't go any further. And even if they are struggling in their faith, did he honor these people for their faith? The answer is yes. How much faith do we need to have before Jesus responds to us? How big does our faith have to be? Yeah, right? Okay. What if we are O ye of little faith? Does he throw us out and start all over and get somebody different? Didn't do it with 11. Didn't do it with them. Because he's trying to continuously build our faith. And it's grace. It's pure grace. We don't deserve it. They didn't deserve it. It's pure grace. What a God we serve. What an amazing Christ. Take the opportunity. I've gone longer than what I thought because I'm excited. But take the opportunity to praise this Jesus who is so phenomenal. You have several minutes of prayer. Let's take advantage of it.